Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org. Good morning. This morning I have with me for Every Day is Earth Day, Lee Walston. He's an ecologist at Argonne National Laboratory's Environmental Science Division. And he has worked with a number of solar energy projects, including one here in Mankato. Good morning, Lee. Hi, good morning, Karen. Thank you for having me. Well, now you are an ecologist and you work with solar projects. So what is it that you do with solar projects and how are you involved here with Mankato? Yeah, so my background is in ecology. I work primarily for, well, I work at Argonne National Laboratory, which is operated for the Department of Energy. And as an ecologist, uh, my role is broadly looking at the ecological and the environmental aspects of, of energy. And in the last couple of years, with all of the solar energy that's been developed across the country, including in Minnesota, a lot of my work has focused on looking at the environmental and the ecological aspects of solar energy. One of the projects that we are working on, which is a DOE funded project, uh, DOE is Department of Energy, DOE funded project is called INSPIRE. It is a national project looking at several solar sites and def several different types of solar configurations to look at the environmental aspects of those solar energy designs. Some of those projects occur in Minnesota. One of those projects occurs right outside of Mankato, and it is a project that we've been working at since, oh, 2017, I want to say. Oh. And we've been looking at the ecological performance and the ecological aspects of that solar site. So it isn't so much about the energy that's coming out of it, is it? It's the site where those panels are located that you deal with. Correct. Yeah, I would say that my my main involvement is looking at the environmental aspects, the habitat and the land use and the vegetation of the site, not so much the energy performance, although that is a pretty big part of the, the puzzle as well. It's just not what my, my team focuses on. You do agrivoltics. Did I say that right? Agrivoltics? Agrivoltaics. But yes, okay, yes, that's, agrivoltics. That is, Tell me, that's a new yep, word for a lot of us. Right. What is that all yeah, about? Yeah, that's a, it's kind of a new term. I don't know who gets credit for first bringing it up. <laughs> it's sort of an umbrella term for multiple land uses at these ground-mounted solar sites. You can imagine that, you know, while solar does take up a quite a quite a footprint. It does have a significant footprint, but that footprint does offer itself for other compatible land uses, such as the planting of native vegetation to restore habitat, like pollinator habitat, for example, or to allow for some types of crop production under and between the, the solar panels, or for other types of agricultural practices like livestock grazing. So that's an umbrella term, agrivoltaics, to sort of encompass all of those various land uses that could be compatible with, with solar energy. Now, it's interesting you mentioned that because it seems early on a lot of the solar panels were located and they put gravel on the ground all around them so and they'd spray so they didn't want any of the weeds coming up, etc. Now, that has changed, it seems to me. That is, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, that was back in the day and the solar history and solar energy history hasn't really been that extensive in the United States as other energy sources. But 
back in the day, say 10 years ago, the common practice for solar energy was to put gravel down, to keep vegetation away, to make these places a very much a single land use, and that is just for solar panels. That's kind of changed, although there are still some areas where it might make sense to keep the vegetation away and to use crushed gravel and, and keep these sites more or less barren. But for the most part, that, that has changed. And now developers and the communities are looking for ways to promote multiple land uses to provide habitat and to allow different vegetation to grow on the sites that are still compatible with solar energy generation. Because I have seen some of the solar arrays on beautiful farmland. It's nice and flat with beautiful soil. And I think, oh, that should that be used for farmland instead? And I've seen others that are located on hills, sides, and slopes thinking, wow, this is a great place for these. Is there any reason they can't all be on land that maybe isn't ideal for other purposes like crops, et cetera? Yeah, I, ideally, in an ideal world, all the solar sites would be sited on you know, lands that are not suitable for agricultural production or they have habitat value that would be compromised by the presence of solar panels. That's the ecologist in me kind of speaking out loud. But uh, a lot of the solar sites, they, they tend to go where it's flat and it's open, meaning you get a lot of sunlight. And that just happens to oftentimes coincide with farmland. This farmland is also relatively flat and relatively open and gets good sun exposure. So in a way, it kind of makes sense that a lot of, at least in the Midwest, a lot of the farmland here in the Midwest is a prime land use that to be converted into to solar. So are some folks saying, well, this is taking a prime resource and using it for something that maybe could be used elsewhere? Yeah, that is that is a main concern. That's probably one of the biggest concerns here in the Midwest is the potential land use conflict of converting prime agricultural land to solar. We advocate that rather than converting prime farmland, we focus on marginal farmland for solar energy development or, or other types of disturbed lands that could be suitable for solar. And in those cases, it could be a major benefit if solar energy developers were to also co-locate co those sites with some other dual land use, whether that's planting of pollinator-friendly vegetation or having livestock grazing on site to benefit agricultural production or some of those other land uses. Can you safely have livestock graze where a solar panel array is located? Because it seems to me, I don't know if they're made of glass or what they are, but it seems like it would be dangerous to, like a bull in a china factory. Oh yeah, oh yeah. We certainly, it's certainly a very common practice with the new, the, the latest technology and the latest developmental practices for solar energy there really are no concerns with certain types of livestock. The most common livestock that is currently most compatible with, with PV solar facilities are sheep, sheep grazing. That is a very common practice. Sheep are generally a little bit more docile. They're a little bit smaller than cattle. They don't jump on the panels. They don't want to jump on the panels like goats. Goats <laughs> tend to have a tendency to want to climb and jump on things and so a developer might be a little bit more reluctant to asking for goats to be on site but sheep are sort of like the prime example right now of what is a, a really good suitable form of livestock that is compatible with solar development there are some projects currently in the works to look at how the steel could be reinforced at some of these solar panels to allow other forms of livestock grazing like cattle Right now, cattle is not really as welcomed on solar sites as uh, sheep because cattle like the well, 
for one, they're much larger, right. and they like to rub against things, and they could potentially damage the panels under their current configurations. But like I said, there are some projects looking at how the panels can be reinforced with some additional steel to enable other forms of livestock grazing like, like cattle. Now, you mentioned pollinators, which of course are always good to support. That's how we get our food supplies through pollinators. But what about other crops that cultivated crops? Is there any chance that they're looking at other crops that you could actually cultivate under there, like fruits and vegetables, for example, or grains, that sort of thing? Is there any realistic possibility for that or not? Absolutely. There's a tremendous amount of possibility there for the growing of crops under and between the panels. There are several studies that are currently underway and at different phases of their projects that are looking at just that. There's some great research going on at the University of Arizona, for example, to look at the certain crop types like tomatoes and peppers and then certain lettuces under and between the, the solar panels. There's also a recent study, um, a recent project that was just, uh, just initiated through the USDA. It's called SCAPES, S-C-A-P-E-S, that is looking at how to grow, how to feasibly grow more commercial crops like corn and soybeans with solar panels. Now, there is a site outside of Mankato that your organization has been working with. It says since 2018, you've been studying the ecological performance of solar pollinator habitat at the solar site outside of Mankato near Eagle Lake. Tell me a little bit more about this. Where exactly is it at and what are you have you been looking at specifically? Yeah, yeah. So just a few miles outside Mankato, this is a solar project that is part of our Inspire project. And it's it's a great solar site. It's got dual, I would say it's got it's a tracking technology, which means the panels track the movement of the sun over throughout the course of a day. And the developer there planted pollinator-friendly vegetation when the site was constructed. And at that time, back in 2018, it was one of the very first solar sites in the United States to plant pollinator-friendly vegetation. And so it was included in part of this study so that we can monitor and track the performance of this vegetation over time and not only track the performance of the vegetation, but also monitor the pollinator community, the insect community, to see if there are any changes in that pollinator community and really just sort of ask that that field of dreams question, right? Of if you build it, will they come? If you plant this pollinator habitat, do you see a positive response in the pollinator community over time at these solar sites to try to ultimately to try to help us understand what is the potential of these solar sites for providing habitat for pollinators and not just pollinators, but also other wildlife species like birds, bats, deer, game birds, like pheasants and quail and turkeys, that the list could go on and on. Well, this started in 2018 here in Mankato, and you mentioned it was one of the first sites. Do you have any results back yet that have shown any positive or negative results? Yeah, we currently have a, a manuscript in review for journal publication right now. And so we're hopeful and optimistic that that will be made available here in the next few months. And the spoiler alert on that article is that, yes, there is a, there is a positive response um, in the pollinator community. And uh, we've been tracking that site for over over five years now. And in that five over over five years, we've seen a year over year increase in the number of insect types and overall insect numbers on the on the site. Looking at just the the pollinator community, uh, are they the good insects or the invasive ones? Because we don't like the invasives. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, um, I will say we we have detected invasives, okay. but they are nowhere close to the number of the good ones that we've seen. So we've seen a big uptick in the number of native bees and the number of native beneficial flies and other beneficial insects. We have detected a few Japanese beetles here and there, but, you know, it's it's safe to say that that's to be expected almost anywhere you go. Now, as yeah. far as wildlife, you track that as well, you said. Zones. We do. We do. We, Yeah, yeah. We use a number of different passive monitoring techniques to look at wildlife that are using the solar sites and also using some of the off-site adjacent lands adjacent to the solar sites. So at this Mankato site and and all of our solar sites, really, we set up acoustic recorders. These acoustic recorders are really just programmed microphones that turn on at certain times of the day and will record all, all sorts of noises all throughout the day, well, well, for as long as they're programmed to record. And then we also use motion-triggered wildlife cameras to detect the presence of other terrestrial wildlife that might inhabit the area. And so the use of those recorders has allowed us to get a, a tremendous amount of data. We're, we've recorded over a terabyte of data just last year alone from all of our various solar sites. So we're in the process now of analyzing all of that data and, and, and trying to pull out trends and patterns in, in the data. And we'll continue to do that for another couple of years. But we're, we're hopeful that that will also help shed some light on some promising opportunities for these solar sites to provide habitat for not just pollinators, but for birds and, and other wildlife as well. You mentioned that there is going to be a printing of this study hopefully soon. Where will that be and when can people expect that to come out? Yeah, so right now we're, we're looking at a, a, a scientific journal publication. So it'll be published in a scientific journal. We have one submitted now, but it has not been accepted yet, but we're hopeful that it will be. But if it is accepted, it'll be made open access and publicly available. I'd be happy to share with you the link to that once it is is published and, and ready to go. That would be great. Maybe we could have you back and talk specifically about that at some point. Absolutely. I don't know if this is in your area, you can talk about this or not, but you had mentioned you have tracking instrumentation on these panels that shows how much sun they absorb or the angle and all that sort of thing. Do you know, are these ones located in the Midwest, are they getting a good amount of solar energy in both the summer, spring, fall, winter, that you decide if this is a good place to locate them in the, in the Midwest, because you know we have the, the winters, the shorter days, et cetera. So does that data that you collect give us an idea about that? Yeah, so another another aspect of our project, and this is where another another team mem a set of team members come into play, is they, they're tracking the performance of the panels, so the energy output, in relation to different land uses and different vegetation. So how do, how do the panels perform energy-wise with the growth of just regular turf grass under the panels as compared to the performance of the panels with taller, denser pollinator vegetation growing under the panels? So that is, that's one general question that the research team is asking. I don't have the numbers for those performances, but I will say that developers, they come to the Midwest because there there is enough sunlight to make the energy production marketable. And like I said, I think, you know, one of the main features about the Midwest is that there's a lot of open, flat farmland that makes solar development a little bit easier here in the Midwest um, as compared to maybe other, other regions. 
And yes, there is enough solar insulation and, and enough solar output from in this region to make solar development feasible. It's just strictly from that that marketing perspective. Like I said, part of our study is to look and and see if the vegetation can also help that in in any way. And so I don't like I said, I don't have numbers to to share on that right now. We're still sort of in the middle of collecting that data, and and um, I've seen some preliminary graphs that do suggest that the pollinator vegetation in and under the the panels does provide a more optimal microclimate for the panels to improve energy production. But those results have not been thoroughly analyzed yet or described and and shown in a a public document. Sounds like that's another one we'll have to talk with you down the line a little bit. Exactly. (laughs) I was just wondering, you mentioned there's you are and your company, Lee, are monitoring what three sites in Minnesota and the one just outside Mankato is one of them. How do they choose which ones get selected and why? Yeah, I'm not I'm not exactly sure of the ex- exact reasons for the solar sites around Mankato and southern Minnesota in general, but a lot of cases it all boils down to a solar developer having a a model or some sort of criteria for site selection. And then that matching up their their criteria for site selection matching up very well with a willing landowner that is willing to lease their land to the solar developer. So it's it's sort of a combination of those two aspects. Um, whatever a solar developer feels is meeting and checking all of their boxes for whatever model that they're de- uh, using, and the proximity to a willing landowner that that is willing to lease their land. And so that's been that's been the general model of development in the Midwest and in in Minnesota, including, is private lands where a farmer is willing to lease a portion of their land for for solar development. So as far as the land, is it mostly lease land or do the the solar companies ever buy land? I'm not sure exactly how that business runs, so I'm just wondering about that. Yeah, in my understanding is that most of these are leases. And the leases for the life of a, a project typ- typically run somewhere between 20 and 30 years. The solar industry is really only roughly a decade old. So we really have yet to see what happens when we do bump up against this 20 or 30 year lease. But there oftentimes are these these clauses or these inclusions to where things could be extended beyond the 20 or 30 year initial lease and those kinds of things. So. Typically, these leases are, they start out as 20 to 30 year leases, yes. Because the goal is having your company, Argonne National Laboratory, to do these measurements, do these tests, make these studies public, and then a lot of the solar energy companies will then say, aha, biodiversity is a good thing. So then they go out and do it. Is that the purpose of why you do this, to show them what is the best practices? Exactly. Yeah, we're in this to to try to evaluate what are some best practices to ensure that the future of solar industry is in balance and is compatible with other environmental objectives, including biodiversity protection, which is very important. And so the Department of Energy, for example, has projected by the year 2050, we will need about 10 million acres of land for utility scale solar. That could look like an awful lot of land just on the surface. But it's also not a whole lot of land if you were to look at how much land is in some of these other land uses like agriculture or other disturbed lands. But it could also be that 10 million acres could be pretty large, especially if they if these solar sites are not properly sited 
or if these sites aren't managed with you know vegetation or with other other types of objectives in mind or other dual land uses in mind so what we're really trying to do is try to try to get out in front of this as quickly as we can to identify what might be the best management practices and opportunities so that this 10 million acres can synergize as best as possible with other other land uses and the surrounding landscape when you say 10 million are you talking in the united states or yeah. The U.S. Yeah, 10 million acres across the United States, correct. Okay, another thing you talk about is developing these, for example, the solar pollinator habitats, talking about the importance of them doing carbon sequestration, water conservation, and that sort of thing. Talk a little bit about those benefits that maybe aren't as obvious to, to folks looking in. Yeah, yeah, so in addition to just providing habitat for pollinators, the vegetation that's planted and managed at these sites also has a potential of, of providing other ecosystem service benefits that we either directly or indirectly can can see, right? Some of these being, well, like you mentioned, carbon sequestration. These plants, compared to other forms of vegetation like turf grass or agriculture, these plants could sequester more carbon and therefore allow these solar sites, if this was a practice that became more and more common across the entire solar industry, the, the carbon that is stored and sequestered at these sites could be quite significant and help contribute even more towards the nation's decarbonization goals. So we're looking into that. We do have some studies now that are looking at how can we monitor and measure carbon sequestration at solar sites specifically and track that over different types of vegetation at, at these solar sites. So solar sites that have just turf grass versus solar sites that are planted with more diverse native prairie habitats and, and forbs and things like that. So that's that's certainly one aspect. And, and along with that, with the, the deeper root systems that some of these plants have and the, uh, the root networks, they could also have been other benefits for say water conservation and things like that as well. So there's several studies that are currently looking into the benefits of different types of solar designs and vegetation management at solar sites in terms of water conservation. Do you have a website you could refer to that would help people learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, we do have a website. I think the best way for some folks to access it would be to just Google Inspire, I-N-S-P-I-R-E, Inspire. You might need to add some search terms, including Department of Energy, Solar Energy, along with that, and some of those search terms will help bring that up. We are talking with Lee Walston, who is an ecologist at Argonne National Laboratory's Environmental Science Division, about some really interesting biodiversity projects in relation with solar energy. I want to thank you so much for your time and helping us understand what you're doing more, and we look forward to hearing more when the report is out. Thank you, Karen. It was a pleasure to be here today. Thank you. Everyday is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union. With two locations in Mankato since 1934, it pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA. More at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org.